Why fashion? It seems so far away from. It really is. Yeah. Where away. did that come from? It's only me and my dad, really. Uh, of people of, of color. So on the racetrack, we were different, and that made me really shy. But when I went to my first fashion show, and I just remember seeing these people of different walks of life. It's like, oh my god, I can be myself in this in this arena. There's people from all over. You've taken quite a strong stance around sustainability and the environment. When I sat with Tommy, I was like, I want my collection to be fully sustainable. If you're a brand that has not become sustainable in the next two to three years, you'll be out of business. Mm. I really believe that. And I think it's really important that we continue to push the fact that everyone is open to everybody. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to Inside Fashion. This week, we're sitting down with a race car driver. Lewis Hamilton is the six-time Formula One champion, but he has also started collaborating with Tommy Hilfiger. I sat down with Lewis the day before the collection was launched at London Fashion Week to get his backstory, to learn how he became one of the most successful Formula One drivers in history, and the approach he used in his collaboration with Tommy, who made a very special appearance towards the end of our conversation to talk a little bit about what he saw in Lewis. So here's Lewis Hamilton with a special appearance from Tommy Hilfiger, Inside Fashion. Lewis Hamilton, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow's a big day. It is, there's been a huge build up. Uh, so much work has gone into to, uh, having the show here in London, yeah, which is really important for me to, to have. Um, and, uh, you know, I get to be involved in so many of the elements and, and for example, choosing London as the launch of the 2020 spring, um, collection, spring summer collection. And, you know, bringing, I really wanted to really highlight the, the fact that I am British, yeah. even though I'm working with a U.S. brand. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Tommy, you see a lot of the American flag everywhere and, I really wanted it to, to remember that it's a collab between us both. And also there's just some, so much um, culture here and style and great artists. And so that was really important for me to bring here. Cool. Before we go in depth on the collection, um, I wanted to go a bit further back because, you know, the hard work didn't start with this collection. It's, nope. It goes back many, many years. Um, to bring you to the position where you can even contemplate doing something like this. Absolutely. So, you know, I've never interviewed a race car driver before. So educate me a little. Like how, how, how does someone become a race car driver? How does that even happen? Uh, so, I mean, we kind of stumbled across it. Yeah. In the sense that, so I started racing when I was eight. Okay. Um, my parents split when I was two. I lived with my dad on the weekends. My dad was, you know, this kind of awkward guy. He's like, what do I do with this little kid? You know, like a lot of dads are, you know? Yeah. Um, and the thing that I loved, I loved cars. So I loved Always watching, loved cars. Just crazy about cars, as a lot of boys are. And, yeah. And um, so that tons of toy cars. I used to, um, had a little radio control car. And the actual, like, the, the initial turning point was I was four and our next door neighbor from the one bedroom flat that we lived in, in Hatfield, 
he built models of like boats and he had built this radio control car and he was driving it in the in the car park in um on the road and he came over and he's like yeah do you want to do you want to go and i was like yes i'd love to and i remember driving this thing and i was really good at it a remote control car but it was really quick yeah like it's a big one and my dad couldn't believe for us as a four-year-old able to control this little car like with a joystick yeah with the little controllers and so then he bought me one and we started racing when I was four. I was racing against people of our age. I was the youngest there by over 10 years. And and I remember to, to watch a little racetrack, you stand on the podium to look down upon it and to, to look over the, the um, kind of the walk the fence to look over. I had to stand on like three beer, ca- uh, beer cases and I'm racing these guys who, you know, spend their hard earnings to race these cars and I'm beating them. You imagine how angry these little these guys were, these little these little four-year-olds, five-year-olds beating us. Um, and anyways, my dad then was like, hey, his uh, hand-to-eye coordination is clearly very great. And I think he was talking to someone. They said, why didn't you try him in a go-kart? When I was five, I went to um, Spain with my dad and we came across a go-kart track. And that was the first time I drove a go-kart and again, that was natural. So I start, I, my dad bought me one from an old newspaper from the back pages. It was fifth hand go-kart. Fifth hand? Yeah, it'd been owned by like five or six families. Really? Bent and crooked and rusty and stuff. And my dad resprayed it with um, stuff from like, it was like a DIY store, like B&Q or whatever it was. Yeah. And then we um, entered some races and we won. From the, I won the first race and... I loved it. So my dad's like, if you do, you keep working out at school, I'll do whatever I can to keep you racing. Then we won our first championship when I was 10. And the kind of rest is history. I got signed when I was 13 by a Formula 1 team. Yeah. I was the youngest ever to be signed. Is that, so is that when they start recruiting people that age? They didn't age? at the time, no. Right. Um, but now they do. So I was the youngest ever to be, be signed. And also, it was, you know, this sport's never been diverse at all. Yeah, I was going to say, because you didn't come from like a privileged background. It's a very expensive sport. It really is. So what was that like for you? It was it was really different for me. As a kid, I was I was having fun, you know. Yeah. On my weekend, I go to school and my weekend, I'm, I'm not going to my friend's house to have a sleepover. I'm going go-kart. Right. And I loved it so much. Um, but my dad, it was really, really hard for my family. Yeah, my dad remortgaged, had to remortgage the house. God knows how many times. Uh, he had four jobs at one stage, in the particular early stages, which sounds crazy because there was no future planned for us, you know. But it was just a hobby that we loved doing. But it was getting more and more expensive. And my dad's like, "How can I, how can I make money to pay for the tires this weekend? How can I keep the car going?" And there were weekends where I was like excited to go racing, and my dad's like, "I'm." I'm so sorry, but well, we don't have the money this weekend. So um, he's been the the you know the most important. Even for my stepmom, she's come into a new relationship, and there's this kid there, and she gave up her life savings wow. and their belief and their commitment was just it's so special. So you know the real story is not the success that I've had; is that that people from working you know working class families can really relate to. Dads right. who don't know what to do with their kids. You see people out there today supporting their kids on the side of a football pitch. It's the same the same thing. And there's not a lot of drivers that are, have that background, so it's a little bit harder to 
for most a lot of people to relate to. But that's the one I'm trying to make sure that people know because we came from nothing and you can do it with a lot of hard work. And of course, you've got to have fortune on the way in the sense of meet. If I didn't meet the boss of the Form 1 team, I wouldn't have got signed. And without that signing, I would have made it because we would have run out of money. Right. Have you seen Cool Runnings? Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, my favorite movie. that took place in Calgary. Yes. I grew up in Calgary. Oh, you did? Yes, I was yeah. there for that Olympics. No way. Where the Jamaican bobsled team showed Are you up. Are serious? Yeah. Wow. And I got two weeks off of school. That's awesome. And I, I was in the opening ceremonies, actually. No way. So I spent the whole... And we were obsessed with that Jamaican bobsled team. No way. Yeah. D- don't tell me you got one of the tops. Because I, mean, I just watched no, the movie. No, I didn't. I mean, I was, I was like, I don't know, <laughs> in 1975... Oh, sorry, 1988, I was 13 years old. Wow. But yeah, I remember that I team. I can't believe it. Why Cool that. Runnings? Um, I mean, just remember watching Cool Runnings when I was a kid. And it's been my favorite movie. And because. just so, just the most relatable story that I'd had as a kid. So I always relate a lot of my life to that movie because, you know, they arrive with this rust bucket at the top of the hill for the first time. They pull it out and everyone, the whole, everyone goes quiet. Yeah. And I always relate that to like me and my dad arriving, you know, because we would, you at know, the racetrack. we were at the racetrack and he would say we're tramps because we, you know, we had these, you know, didn't look great clothes and the cars shoved, uh, the go-kart shoved in the the back of the boot of of our car and we we pick it up throw it on the floor and it looks it look, doesn't look good and um i remember a lot of people looking at us like what are they doing here you know because again it wasn't a diverse um group it's, it always been a, a white dominated sport however there was in in the, um, the early stages there are there were some other families that are trying but they would have they run out of money but um so I related a lot to that, you know, and we just did our talking on the track as they did. And the both said they Except kept. they didn't win over. But they nearly did. They nearly but did. They but they won I'm, people's hearts. Yeah, they did. But you've, you've gone on and you've become, you know, without exaggeration, a living legend in your field. You know, six F1 titles, the first one at the age of 23, the youngest ever at the time. Yeah. You know, what, what did you learn about achieving success at such a young age at such an elite level what does it take because you know you yes you had some luck you know you had clearly got a gift yeah you had an incredibly supportive home environment yeah but at the end then it then it comes down to your dedication yeah. and this and the and the focus and how much you wanted yeah talk to me a little bit about that it was really difficult i would i mean the journey i think people generally seem to to only see the tip of the iceberg, you yeah. know? I don't know if you've ever seen an iceberg and known how big it is beneath. They're huge. Yeah. And uh, there's a picture I found and, you know, it shows you the success is what everyone sees this little bit on the top, but underneath is where all the hard work is. So, you know, I mean, people tune in today and see um, someone that's won God knows how many times and the championships and and probably not fully aware of how it's taken me years. I started when I was eight. Didn't turn pro till I was 22. And um, the, when I got to Formula 1, so the build-up to it is just you, you're not prepared. You're prepared to race, but you don't get any preparation in terms of media training. You don't get prepare, preparation in terms of what, you know, no one said, you know, this is what's going to happen when people start seeing you on TV. And that that's a real shock to the system. And... Um, and then working, you know, there's the, when you work in a big organization, when there's a thousand people behind you working 
to make that car go and it, your decisions out on the track impact every single one of those you know so if you're selfish with your choices and you make mistakes and crash everyone feels it sure there was a it was a lot of pressure but um and again being that we came in every conversation is are you the first you're the first black form one driver there's never been that here again no diversity in it so it's only me and my dad really uh of people of, of color in the in in there so which was quite we felt alone a little bit in that sense um but it was a great platform for us to do something great and inspire you know and we as as we went through that journey different people with different backgrounds were coming out to us like oh my god my kid now wants to be a racing driver and they want to be you and i that made me and my dad so proud because i grew up seeing people like tiger woods doing the same yeah. seeing the williams sisters doing the same and yeah you're breaking down barriers yeah and i never thought that that would i don't know i just because i arrive and i think i'm the same as everyone else yeah. but in actual you fact, don't realize it at that age because you know things around race and you know creed and religion these are all you know things that we become more aware of as we get older but when you're young you're a bit more naive about it absolutely and then you realize you know you're in this incredibly privileged position now absolutely. to really you know shift perceptions and break down barriers and you know be a, a role model definitely to show what's possible but as you said you know you learn that a lot more later on i wish i knew what i knew now when i was 22 of course i'd be even further ahead yeah <laughs> well you're not doing so bad um so then you know, you're so busy with this career and I can't even imagine, I mean, I just, I was just looking at the F1 schedule and then like, I heard it starts in like, you just launched the car yesterday and it's going to start in March and then it goes to like December. So how do you find time to like go and pursue another interest in fashion? And maybe first of all, why fashion? It seems so far away from. It really is. Yeah. Where did that come from? So, um, so when I was younger, I was always watching, I was crazy, been crazy about music. My dad was in a band. Yeah. So uh, I always come home, I'd watch MTV bass. MTV was my lifeblood right. and, um, inspired by, you know, at the time heavily into hip hop. And I was inspired by a lot of rap and the, 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 the style that people would have out there. So I, a lot of my styling at the time was you know, big and baggy clothes and, um, and, but I remember being at school again, in not a very diverse school, I think there's nearly, uh, nearly 2,000 kids at my school, I think it was, 1,500. And again, I went into bed, there was maybe a maximum of like 10 people of color probably in that school. In the whole school? Yeah. So again, not a, it felt like a school that had some color to tick the box kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I just remember being very, very much in my shell as a kid. I didn't feel like I fitted in to... Yeah, it, whether it was at school and how I dressed, how I appeared. Um, also on the racetrack, we were different. And that made me really shy and really um, kind of just stay kind of enclosed. And it wasn't until I, I, mean, I was getting a bit older and then particularly when I went to, I, I started, um, I was always looking at magazines of how people were, were styled and it's like, I want to find my, my own way. But when I went to my first fashion show, and I saw all these different people. What was the first show? 
Uh, Do you remember? It was a Hugo Boss show because I was with, um, at the time, with Hugo Boss as a, it was a part of my team. Okay. So it was the only way I could go. Um, and I just remember seeing these people of different walks of life. And then I was like, okay, I want to go more. And I felt comfortable in that area. And I felt um, I was like, oh, my God, I can be myself in this in this arena. There's people from all over. And yeah, it doesn't look I mean, like that's anyone's one of the really most judging. amazing things about fashion. It's yeah. like you can channel whoever you are in whatever way you want. Yeah. And the industry kind of embraces that. It's Absolutely. an industry that embraces individual self-expression. Self Absolutely. And then I felt like the, it, it gave me that space to be uh, be able to express myself. Yeah. So I Not doing so, so bad now. Yeah. I don't know. Just, I don't, I'm not starting I mean, to do these you things. You listeners out there can't see what Lewis is wearing, but um, definitely found his, <laughs> his style. So how did you find, how did you find your like style? Well, even down to like my tattoos, for example. Yeah. You know, my dad was not, and my family had not come from a culture of tattooing and um, it was frowned upon. Like you can't have tattoos. And when I got into my, I remember my first meeting with the Form 1 bus, I walked in and I came as me and I remember him looking me up and down and I, I felt so like judgmental because right. I wasn't in the shirt and how a racing driver is supposed to look like. Right. But there had never been another driver like me right. there. And, um, but I remember feeling like I had to conform to what he wanted me to look like, um, to be, to, in order to be good enough to be accepted into the environment. Um, and, but I didn't feel comfortable in that space. And so bit by bit, and then I started to kind of come out my shell, but I had to win. It's like, if I win, then I can come out a little bit more and I can, then I can get my tattoo that I've wanted to, this is how I'm going to express myself. So once I got my roots dug in fully, they can't get rid of me, then I could start doing these things and um you know my sister always had uh she worked she married a tattooist so i used to go and watch them tattoo people all the time so i knew i wanted to do tattoos um and in terms of my style i think that's just just progressed slowly as i've started to understand what does work and what doesn't work a lot of mistakes and um and geez now i have this opportunity to really express myself to the the fullest with with tommy Mm -hmm. the Tommy partnership which um, so much work went into making that partnership work because my team had you know when you in Formula 1 you they have all the sponsors already mostly and so all the sectors are co covered and I had to, and I come across Tommy we'd met at these events and Tommy was like the, is the nicest guy you know he's always just smiling just beaming with positive energy and he was always like I love what you're wearing and it I was thinking he doesn't need to say that about me. He gave me so much confidence, added confidence, you know. And um, he said, we should do something together. I was like, he ain't serious. I don't believe him. And it's like two or three times we had bumped into each other. He said the same thing. And then we started, we didn't on the phone. And I remember talking to my boss um, at Mercedes. And I was like, I have this incredible opportunity to work with Tommy. They're like, we can't because we're with Hugo Boss at the time. And Mercedes have been with Hugo Boss uh, in my, I think, 30 years. The partnership have been like 25, 30 like a years. German connection yeah, or something. Like, there's no way Mercedes are going to drop, uh, you know, not continue with Hugo Boss and allow color in. Because not my color in terms of the brand Tommy logo. Because yeah. it was always Mercedes are very black and white and silver. The team is all black, you know, the tops are black and gray. And so, yeah. so anyway, I convinced my team and Mercedes to ultimately end the partnership 
And I had to convince Tommy, who they weren't interested in being in Formula 1, I had to convince Tommy to get involved in Formula 1, and which opened the door for me to do this project with them. So does the Tommy logo actually appear on the car somewhere? Yes. So we have the Tommy logo now on the, on the, it's on the front of the car. Okay. And, and they, they do all the team clothing. Amazing. And they do, I think they, you know, Mercedes do a bunch of other things like sailing and, um, and they also support in those other areas. Yeah. So it's been cool to bridge that gap because Mercedes didn't realize how great it would be for them. Tommy didn't realize how great being in that space again, because Tommy loves cars, but I think the organization didn't realize how great it would be. And then, um, and then, um, you know, happy driver wins races. <laughs> um, I noticed that you've taken quite a strong stance recently around sustainability and the environment. I think you're vegan now. Yeah, I've been yeah. vegan nearly three years. Yeah. How, how does that impact the way you see the fashion industry? Because I'm sure you know one of the big conversations in our industry right now is really around sustainability and consumption and this industry that's just like driving this endless consumption of, of stuff. Yeah. You know, how, how does that jive with your personal values around the planet? Well, going back, I guess it goes back to, um, like, you know, when I, when you're younger, you don't necessarily take too much notice of a lot of things that are happening. I was so focused on racing. I, I wasn't noticing the impact the industry necessarily was having. It wasn't until it started, I started to notice it. And, and that came from, um, meeting people who had gone vegan and started showing me the things that were happening to animals. You know, you'd watch the TV and you'd see uh, protests for f animal fur and you think that's disgusting. You know, that's horrible that that's happening. But until you really, really see the footage and things that they're doing in the background, um, it's not, you need to see the graphic for me. And I saw it and I was like, I don't want to contribute to that. And then I started to notice the far deeper impact that, um, that, us in the racing world are having but the um the fashion world is having and i was like okay if i want to get involved in this how can i be a part of the solution so when i sat down with tommy in that first meeting and again i think at the you know the past like five years probably the three years most brands they have it as a tick we recycle paper we also you know but it's slowly slowly becoming coming up the ladder of importance in these in these brands um out there both in, in just on all sort of walks of life in in the motor in industry it's now becoming a priority to go mm -hmm. they're under a lot of pressure the fashion industry is slowly becoming pressured but it's probably still not enough and i was like i want to be the first i was like when i sat with tommy i was like i wanted my collection to be fully sustainable and they're like well this we can't do that um i said well, why it's not? like really hard because the, yeah. the way the industry is currently sourced and the way that where the, where the cotton comes from and it's and, fast you know it's, it's it's super fast yeah but uh, i was like well we've got to find the way yeah and so then they went out and did some i said like please do as much research as you can let's find there must be companies out there and so i did some research as well and we discovered there there are technologies out there and processes out there so our first collection was 25 percent and i said look my goal is to get to 100 i want it to be a cool brand um and zero impact mm -hmm. and so we are now to this collection now is uh 75 sustainable which i'm i can't tell you how proud i am to be there i'm super inspired by stella 
yeah. who I've sat down with multiple times just heard, to pick I her I heard brain. you were in the studio. Yeah. I've been just, spending time with she's Stella. She's just awesome, yeah. Yeah, but it, and you go in and you see the amount of work that she had to do. It kind of reminds you of all the work you had to do at the beginning of your career. Absolutely. Like to have that kind of vision early on when like the industry was not engineered for that kind of work. Absolutely. Yeah. So many constraints on what materials you can and use. People probably it's not possible. Oh, yeah, totally. Things. Yeah. It's not going to work. Yeah. Look what she's created. And, you know, I'm a real believer in, um, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm, if I've applied myself so well to my job and my career and this, I've mastered Minecraft, but I know how long it's taken me to master Minecraft. It didn't happen overnight. And I'm fully aware of that and respectable of these other different professions, how long it's taken for Stella, for example, to, and Tommy to be where they are. And I'm never like, I'm just going to jump in and I'm going to be good at it. I, I realize, okay, I've got to start. I'm happy to start at the ground from the ground up. So when I joined, I was like, I'm basically your intern. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. It's going to be annoying. Um, but how amazing. Yeah. And I, I want to be hands-on. I don't want yeah. to just be the front of what you guys are putting out there. I actually want to create, have an impact. And, um, and that's where we, we've had, and this works so well that we've extended you know, we've had more, sh we've had more collect collections. So this is tomorrow's the fourth collection, fourth. but you're going to do more. We have one uh, that's coming out at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, and we're also now, now I'm already starting to research into what I want next year to be. Okay. So, you know, at the stage that you're at in your career now, you know, race car driving is typically, you know, something that starts really young. Yeah. Um, now you're one of the more elder statesmen I am. of the, the second oldest are you? Oh, God, yeah. of the field. <laughs> so how much of this is about kind of setting the groundwork for Lewis Hamilton post F1 champion status? Yeah, it's an integral part. Um, I was just saying that, the, uh, you know, I've done a lot of studying of like other and spoken to a lot of um, current athletes and athletes that are retired. It's quite a scary scenario for an athlete because you focus so much on your the, the thing that you love your whole life and your career but you can't go forever and then often when they stop they're like oh my god i've not focused on anything else so then they start from scratch learning something else or discovering what they love but they've got to keep an income coming so they often grab whatever's closest and um from so i tried to spend a bit of time trying to figure out what i what can what else am i going to love as much as i love racing most likely nothing and then I went to these shows and I started to just, just this growing love for the fashion industry and the, the speedy shows that are only there for like 10 minutes and the circus that comes in and comes out. And I know, oh man, I was just, I was literally running from races. As soon as I was finished from a race, run out to, you know, get on the plane, get to the city, get, get fitted and get into one of these shows and speak to these designers. And um, then I had my own show. And standing back with Tommy, I had the same nerves and excitement that I have when I start a race. Really? Um, it's the same. Yeah. I, and I, I was, I couldn't believe it. I was like really emotional about it because it's like, I didn't think I'd love anything else, as I said. And I was, you know, take attention to these. I wanted to do all the models to look great. I was nervous of how people were going to perceive it. And I have that same vibe to going tomorrow. So um, this is about building and learning as much as I can. With, with Tommy so that when I stop, I'd hope that I'd just continue. Do you think, you know, now that you have more of an insider view into the industry, has it changed your style and kind of refined it? Or For sure. What changed? Because well, you're inspired by it. When you yeah. see all these people, you, you see 
everyone everyone's different perception um yeah you get to communicate with people that are in in the industry and learn from them who do you think is the most stylish person in fashion that you meet most stylish person hmm well they're all different aren't they that's there's a the um the most stylish person for me i was always inspired by pharrell okay i love pharrell style yeah just always have this thing it's just cool i love he turns up to a gala in shorts and you know uh, and and clocks whatever he you know just he just comes in at whatever style that he likes and he doesn't let the uh, anyone dictate what he how he dresses um who else i mean i i can't think of one uh at one person in particular because everyone's quite it different can be, it can be multiple people yeah i mean i i love what um designer wise i mean i love i really love what kim's doing yeah it's great. Have you been to one of his shows? Yeah, I, I, I'm just, I love Kim's work. So Kim and Virgil are kind of at the top for me in terms of their, their, their ingenious. So in terms of like managing the time, how do you balance the time between the racing and the collection? I think that's been the biggest, probably the biggest challenge and, um, you know, look, when I started, I, I remember these different steps. Like I, I, I had my ears pierced when I was younger and then my dad made me take them out. And I remember I go, and then I was like, but that's, that's what I like. That's how, that's a part of my expression. And I remember when I got into the form one scene, I had to take him out because again, it's back to that, how they expected me to look. And I remember I came on the scene, I just had my ears pierced and everyone crazy. Like, what's he doing? Blah, 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 blah. And just everyone judging. Um, and that was the beginning of, you know, then get tattoos and then dressing the way I want to dress, et cetera. But, um, so then I, the only way I could combat it is by winning, not being affected by those who are judging, not being affected by the sneers and the negative that I, negativity that I was receiving. And cause people in my industry, they're like a racing driver goes to bed at 10 PM trains all day. And that's all they do. They only race and train. They don't do other stuff. You can't be anything else. You're in a box. And I come along and I do everything differently. When on race weekend, I go to bed like 2, 3 a.m. Because my I work on a body clock that I know about. And that's how I can get myself to operate in the best window. I run from a race and I go off to a fashion event. or um, and, and I do a bunch of things that you're not supposed to do. Like I skydive and I rock climb and I do extreme stuff, which like you're not allowed to do normally. So I break all these, I go against everything that they had originally and people frown upon it, but then I arrive and I win. Um, it wasn't last year, I think it was, or the year before, we had a Tommy event in New York, which um, is a really cool like party we did. And then I flew straight from that night, straight to Singapore arrived and I had the best qualifying lap probably in my career. Really? And the pre- it's not easy to do that to, to, you know, so there's real detail going to it. So for example, I speak to a, a, a sleeping professional that works with NASA uh, astronauts who tells you when you're supposed to sleep on your flight. I look at when I'm supposed to eat and not eat. So when I get there, I have minimum drag, uh, um, uh, jet lag. Um, I do a lot of the work on the flights. I, it's just about trying to find the right balance. Um, on the weekends, once the job's done, often you're done in the evening, so you have 
if you're in Europe, you have from seven to, and the Chevron appearance back at the hotel. So that's when I'm there doing sketches. And then I'm, I'm emailing over the weekend with my, uh, with the team here uh, who are in Amsterdam. And then I'm like, oh guys, it doesn't work in showing you on the sketch. I've got to come and see you on Monday morning. So I fly in on Monday, organizing the meeting over the weekend. And so I just fit it where I can. Like this week has been, this week's been manic. I have, we've had all these, all the photo shoots for collateral for the team. We've had the, the launch yesterday, um, all the partners that we have, you have all the photo shoots for those, the filming for those that they use for the rest of the year. So, I, you know, I'm up just before six, I'll go to the, I'll go for my run or I'll go to the gym, come back, quickly change, grab a smoothie, head off to work, wow. do the work during the day, get back. I think I'll end up getting back like 7.30, quickly hop to the gym, even if it's a short period, but at least get a bit of a workout, come back to my room quickly, um, eat and then get to bed and do the same the next day. Just, I use as much time as I can. I think it's just about being efficient. Um, and I just try and find a balance. I, I never want to be tired when I get in the car. And if there's a point where I'm tired and I know I'm not 100% because I've done something else, I'll pull back on those. Such as I'll pull back off Tommy if I felt that it was impacting the work. Impacting and not let me be the best I can. Sure. But people get angry. They're like, how's he do that and he goes and drives the car and the energy but i think it's a i think well, it's clearly a whatever you're doing is working yeah i think it's a mindset you yeah. know like there's nothing generally you can't do can't shouldn't be in, in your vocabulary it's like you find a way yeah. and i think i generally have a lot of energy as it is anyways i'm super energetic mm -hmm. you know and being vegan helps yeah. I, I when i went vegan i found an improvement in my my physical form and my energy and my mindset and um and i and i honestly feel freaking great and people are like oh you're gonna lose muscle because you can't have protein i need my meat rubbish do you know what's in that stuff and hmm. uh, my skin cleared up my, my mood swing i have no mood swings consistent energy and when you're an athlete it's all about focus do you watch tennis or anything yeah of course you wonder how they stay like I, I'm always fascinated how they stay focused and don't, you know, drop the ball. And when they drop the ball, how they recover and all these different things. And that's similar to when we're driving. It's very much the same mindsets and staying that consistent through 21 races and finishing every single race and every single lap and having the highest scoring of the year is that's how you win. And I've had the most, the last two years have been the most successful I've had being vegan. As an athlete in the spotlight, though, you, you also have to deal with a lot of scrutiny, right? So much. <laughs> how do you, how do you deal with that? What, you know, there's always people, you used the word judging earlier. It's not just the people in the industry. It's like everyone that's watching. Yeah. Is that something you get used to after a while or how do you? I think, I think, yeah, I mean, your, t your skin toughens up. I think when I first when social media started being a really important thing and I'd see comments and it, it, you can definitely take it to heart. And I definitely remember experiencing that and feeling really affected from, from it. But you gotta just remember that you can't please everybody. You can't please everybody and you're never going to. Um, so it's, it's acknowledging the people that are around you that do love you. I know, I know my values and I'm a cause and I'm a good person. And I know I've got great people around me who uh, shine positive energy towards me and add to my life. 
And I've got these people that I never thought, I honestly, when I was in Stevenage growing up and I used to be, I used to walk two minutes around the corner and play football with these kids. I never in a million years thought I'd have people following me. You know, like I wanted to be a racing driver, but I hadn't even contemplated the things that come along with it. I was like, I just want to drive cars and be the best. But I never thought that there'll be people who are going through really difficult times that I've also experienced. We all, everyone's going through a tough time, you know, in some way, shape or form. I never thought that me posting like, hey guys, we can get it today, could make a difference to someone who's really having a tough time that day. And I get these messages from people like, oh my God, you know, like I met this woman in London when I went to um, went to watch a, a show and this woman ran up to me. She's like, oh my God, I was going through my chemo fighting can breast cancer and and you, I was watching you on the weekends and you got me through it. And I was like, yeah, I blew my mind because I'm like, no, you got yourself through it. Right. The power's within you. Yeah. But I, I love that she that her watching me and fighting through the, the races helped spur her along. And that's such a beautiful yeah. position to be in, you know, and I just embrace that. And uh, so, but there are people on the race circuit that don't like me. There are fans that choose someone else and I respect it. It's totally cool. But for the ones that are on the journey with me and the ones that are connected with me, we're going to do something great. There was that moment I remember a few years ago when you posted that, um, picture of your nephew and there was that big like outpouring of you know and we, you talked about you know wearing earrings when you were younger and not being accepted for that like how my does sisters used to dress me up as a girl by the way right no i've never ever told anyone that <laughs> my sister my two sisters used to dress me up when my mom would go to aerobics yeah i'd come downstairs with a wig on and they used to put me in their little dresses and i i, I mean i did I just thought it was funny because I like playing a character. Right. Um, but what did you yeah. learn from that moment when that happened? Um, well, firstly, knowing that I had hurt people, that that really broke me because I never ever mean any negativity to right. anybody. Um, and also, you know, what I don't. What year were you born? Nineteen seventy-five. So I'm eighty-five, child. But you know that era of growing up in a household with certain, certain beliefs. There were really clear definitions of gender absolutely and what you know boys should wear and what girls should wear and like absolutely pink and blue and you know the world is changing now the world is changing and being open to that and understanding i i mean i learned so much through that that process because i mean i've got i've got gay friends who i love and i and and i never thought that i would impact people in that way and yeah. i and i really wanted to I think it happened and, and I just, I'm grateful it did, if, if, if anything, because I learned so much through it. Yeah. Um, and I, I love the way the world's changing and yeah. how it's become and how it's shifting and how, for example, it just it's the laws that are changing and all these things and it's being more open. I love seeing the gay rights events that they're doing and um, gender equality, I think, is so, so important. I want to be a part of that. Um, that shift and this that collection solution. is a gender neutral collection, it's a gender right? Neutral collection, which yeah, which I really really push because I think that is the most one of the most important things today, uh, aside from like sustainability and those kind of things, because they, I think this is a, I think this world has been uh, the fashion world has been an industry that's not a lot made people feel welcome, um, or that they belong, and and I think it's really important that we 
continue to push the fact that everyone is open to everybody. Yeah. No matter where you're from, no matter what you look like, no matter what your gender is, what uh, religion, rule one, rule the same. Yeah. My nephew, you know, and the kids who are the future, you know, my, I want my nephew to be whoever he wants to be and, I want it, and the best that he can be. Mm -hmm. I want to give him the best opportunity for education. I want him to be the, choose the colors he loves. And, and, and I didn't really, I, I didn't realize um, you have to be so sensitive, you have to be so careful in today's world because social media is such a big pro, uh, platform and it's a, it's a space to really, really voice uh, opinions and really impact people in a positive way, I think. Yeah. That's what you're supposed to use it for, I think. Um, and I think it really made me really, really dig deep and think of how I can be a positive impact rather than yeah, do something that so absolutely cool well now now is probably a good time to bring in a special guest yes tommy hilfiger himself <laughs> tommy hilfiger thank you for thank you for taking the time to join us uh, lewis and i've just had like a really interesting fascinating conversation about his career and um how it's shaped both his kind of um, strong mental state to do all the work he does and find the balance between the various things he does. We've talked about um, how you met, but tell me a little bit about what what drew you to Lewis. You know, I mean, you've been doing these collaborations with various people, Gigi and with Zendaya, but what was it about this Lewis Hamilton that drew you to him as a potential collaborator? Well, first of all, I'm a Formula One fan. Right. So obviously I knew who he was. And when I first met him, I introduced myself and we had a chit chat. But I liked him as a person. And I liked his sense of style, which was really, I would say, chic and low key when I first met him. And then when I met him at some events, he was dressed in, in fashion. Right. And I thought, oh, he's got great taste. And a lot of athletes who have a lot of money to dress any way they want miss the target sometimes. They either overdo it or underdo it. But Lewis sort of hit that target where he looked really cool. And... He was a really nice person. And I could tell he was genuine because uh, the com in the conversation, he looked me in the eyes and uh, there was a sincerity. So I said, we should do something together. And I think that he didn't really believe me. And then I saw him again and I said, we should do something together. And I think he sort of believed me. But uh, at the time I was thinking about what our next collaboration would be with a male. And I thought it would be perfect to do something with Lewis if he would be willing. So it all came to fruition. And what I didn't know was that he was going to be intimately involved in every detail. From the development of the font in the logo down to the, the zippers and the buttons and 
you know, spent hours with the team. He also brought in a lot of his own ideas and it gave our brand uh, a refresher. It allowed us to step into an area that we've been known for, but in a new way. Right. So with this specific collection and just the collaborations in general, how do you how do you ensure it's the right balance between kind of reflecting the personality and taste and aesthetic of your collaborator while also linking it to the Tommy Hilfiger DNA? Nick, well, how do you strike that balance? It's never easy because that's always sort of the challenge yeah. where without abandoning our DNA, yeah. how do you link the two together? And it's sometimes uh, a very serious thought as to how to do it. But Lewis was really open to figuring out how to do it with us. And I think it came from his love for what he was bringing to the table, but respect for the brand. And that really meant a lot to us because it wasn't just about Lewis. And I've worked with people before who want it to be just about them. And uh, I don't mean Gigi or Zendaya because we had a we great relationship with both of them. But over the years, you know, we've worked with certain people, and uh, they, they were a bit about themselves. Lewis was incredibly humble and respectful of our brand. So we're in the fourth season with him now, whereas. Uh, Normally, a, a collaboration would be like maybe two seasons. Right. He also pushed you, right? Because um, we were talking about his new status or recent status as a vegan three years ago and thinking about, you know, the sustainability of not just the racing industry, but also the fashion industry, which, as you know, it's a very resource-intensive industry. Um, I noticed in a lot of the, like, press release and marketing materials that talks about, you know, this being a more 75% more from sustainable materials, but, and, you know, trying to reduce the impact on the planet. But I also wonder sometimes, you know, if the consumer, the people buying the clothes actually understand the difference because so many people use the word sustainable and it feels like it's meaning is being somewhat diluted. You know, how, you know, what is it about this collection, you know, and this is for both of you, that genuinely makes it more sustainable? Yeah, I mean, when we, we've started to dive into uh, the, making sure that we animal cruelty is, is not a part of our ethos, um, obviously, the, the, we, we're using recyclable fabrics, 100% um, cotton. Uh, we found a, a new type of, of down that's um, plant-based, um, for example, and in, in, in the vegan shoes that we have, we're not using any leather. Um, the, the suede, for example, is faux, it's all faux leather and suede and fur. And um, so just finding these new materials that f still feel and look fantastic, they're not diluted at all. It's just new new ways of, of making these these materials that don't have um, a bad impact uh, in, the, in, in the process of making them 
just in down to even, for example, we were just talking recently about when we're dying um, at the Denims, for example, we're using less water because a lot of the dye goes into the water system. So there's so many different areas um, that, that it's having. What's the biggest challenge? Like what are the, the sustainable challenges that you haven't yet been able to crack? Because it says 75%. So what's the remaining 25%? Uh, something as small as underwear, the plastic that is in the elastic right. in the belts. You know, something like that is still not... that We're still obviously looking for um, vendors to come out with that new process of making those kind of things. So making it 100%. And it's not only just the clothing, but it's the packaging. It's the labels. It's... For me personally, it's when we do a show, uh, it's leaving a minimal carbon footprint as possible, no plastics. Um, it's, it's so many areas that I'm, that I'm personally goal-driven to, to push. But it's such a big, big brand and to shift something that's been working in one way, it takes time. Um, but also that all the vendors, I think they're, the technology is in its early stages. Um, but the fact that they've got a big, big brand like Tommy pushing um, that direction, it pushes those companies those, that to push their technology further. And so for, I think probably for all these, these young um, designers that are coming up, now have better vendors to go to. So I like to think... And that Tommy, will this, will this push you in the other parts of your business that um, aren't the collaboration with Lewis to become, to use more of these sustainable processes and materials... The, the entire company is on this very focused journey. So the train has left the station and we believe... It's an electric train, right? <laughs> <laughs> electric train. <laughs> but we believe we're leaders in the industry because we're not just talking the talk, we're walking the walk. Uh, Lewis referred to the denim. For five years now, we've been washing our denim jeans without water. We're using fabrics that are made from plastic bottles, waste. We're upcycling and recycling to avoid landfill. We just awarded a young startup in Amsterdam with a grant to uh, recreate items from scrap, from uh, vintage Tommy, from vintage denim, from other people, and using refugees to do the sewing and the manufacturing in Amsterdam. So I think as a result of having a leader like Daniel Greeter, as CEO of our company, we have the green light to do whatever we have to do to get there. Right. And the goal is by 2024 to become 100% sustainable. But we would be remiss in waving that flag now saying we are fully sustainable because it wouldn't be true. We're not there yet. But Lewis has, Lewis's influence has helped us in motivating the whole company. Wait a minute, this is real. We have to be there. And if you're a brand, that has not become sustainable in the next two to three years, you'll be out of business. Mm. I really believe that. I think Lewis believes that. I think we all believe that in our company. You know, one of the things that I've been mulling over so far this year 
I'm thinking about a lot is that our industry is actually driven by overconsumption. So it's one thing to make things better, but isn't part of the equation naturally just buying fewer, better things that last longer? You know, you know, so yes, they should have a minimal impact, but we have this whole industry, you know, and you know, every brand is kind of responsible for this. The industry as a whole is responsible for this. Spending billions of dollars of marketing every year to try to get people to buy more things. And that's the lever, I think, as an industry, we, we have to think about. What do you think? We're creating a system where whereby the customer will, will be able to trade in their old and then we will refurbish, we will repair and resell. So we want to make it very circular. And so do we want to sell more? Yes. But sell more what? We would like to sell vintage Tommy because we think it's as valuable as new Tommy. Maybe even more valuable. Well, a lot of it is more valuable because they're hard to find pieces from the 80s and 90s that have become obscure. But the idea would be to really create the circular economy within our own operation. I think you also be, have to be um, mindful that this is uh, something that's been built for years and years and years and years and years. You know, it's, just, it's not going to change overnight. You know, this is just how human beings are. They consume, we consume, we're, you know. We even call ourselves consumers. Yes. We're like, I mean, just what, I don't know if, I mean, I've, constantly trying to read and see the impact we're having in the world. I've been watching these documentaries of the, the mining, the, the beautiful landscapes that we're destroying. The, if you look today, for example, I don't know if everyone sees, but you know, the new hybrid engines that we all go into, the battery, those are fields and fields of pools for the, for the sun to heat up these pools and use the, um, the lithium batteries and stuff like that. When those batteries' uh, life come to end, the process of getting rid of those batteries is going to be different. So there's all these things that there's so much thought that needs to go into it. But changing people's uh, habits and people as humans, we want always more. I think that's going to take a long time to shift. Yeah. Um, well, I, think, I think you can play a role in that. No, definitely. And, I, and, and as I said, we, you know, we're working on the idea of, um, of the recycling, making it a circular thing being the leaders in something like that. And not, I think we can pioneer something that will hopefully impact the rest of the- Well, we'll all be watching. And I'm, I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to chat with both of you. I'm looking forward to the show. So glad you're here in London for, for a change. Really awesome. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you. Uh, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion from the Tommy Hilfiger studio in West London. Um, we'll see you next week for their latest episode of Inside Fashion. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.